Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want to preach to you a message today that I'm entitling Bread, Not Scorpion. Can you say that with me? Say Bread, Not Scorpion. I hope you're in good cheer this morning. I uh, I need you to be patient. As I was telling the earlier gathering, I need you to be open. And I need you to allow me in front of you sometimes to struggle with the words that I need to find. And you say, Craig, why? Well, David Long, uh, a great composer, he was, some of you may know his music. He describes his craft this way. He he says that he writes music that he knows is very uh, incredibly difficult even for the world's best musicians. And he says the reason he writes music that is so difficult, even for the world's greatest musicians, is because he writes for live performance. And he wants the the audience, he thinks that the audience needs to feel the danger of the musicians struggling to find the notes. When the audience sees that the musicians are struggling to find the notes, they are caught in that moment. Makes for a better concert. And so what he does and his belief is that he wants to catch them in that way. Well, this morning, if I can say it humorously, will be me struggling to find the notes to catch you in the moment, to draw you in. And my hope is if I'll keep my heart before the Lord that's right, and you'll keep your heart before the Lord in the right way, as I struggle to find the notes and you are caught in the moment, what will happen is the Lord will speak and you will hear the Lord speak in and through and over and maybe even against my own words about what he wants for you, what he wants for us, what he wants from us, what he wants from you. I want us to consider today a mystery in prayer, one that quite honestly troubles some of you and maybe even keeps some of you from praying. Sometimes when I'm bored, I, uh, I like to ponder the greatest mysteries of life, things that will blow your mind if you think about them too much. Let me give you a couple examples. First of all, if you spell out the word bed, lowercase bed, it looks like a bed. Was that intentional? Mind blown, right? I mean, this looks like a bed, right? If you look at the word bed, it looks like a bed. Or, or how about this one? When I learned that Yoda and Miss Piggy were voiced by the same guy, some of you, your world just crumbled right here, just crumbled. Come on, show me the emoji. Give me the emoji. This is what my life has been for the last seven days, okay? Just blown, right? Or I thought the thought that I had the other day when I was in a restaurant, we were waiting on our food, and as I was there waiting on my waiter to bring me food, I thought, I am the real waiter. Like, they're not waiting. I'm waiting, right? Like, I am the way. I mean, just mind blown. Or when I was in middle school and somebody pointed out that if a ghost was trying to kill me, he was really just trying to be my best friend. Oh, that made things better, right? He was haunting me to be my best. Or how about this one? Reading is essentially staring at dead trees and hallucinating. (laughs) Okay, right? Everything's coming unraveled for you, right? Right there in our midst. Let me tell you something I do now. Whenever I watch TV on a Saturday night, I turn on the subtitles, the subtitles on the TV, so that when I come into church the next day, people say, what'd you do last night? Oh, I read for a couple hours, okay? Some of you need to do that. Some of you need to do that. Or the last one, catch this. There are no children left on earth who were born in the 20th century. Everyone born in the 20th century is now officially an adult. That is depressing. Mind blown, right? Let me tell you, the subject we're gonna talk about today, if you think about it too long, happens. That's what this series is about. It's about contentions that we find in Scripture. 
it's one of those subjects that what role do our prayers have in changing God's plans? In other words, do our prayers convince God to do something that he wasn't otherwise planning or going to do? Say, Craig, why talk about this subject of prayer? Well, let's just get right to the heart of it. Many of us in this room, we can admit that we don't have a healthy and robust prayer life. Now, I'm not judging you on that or condemning you or speaking negatively to you. Theologian D.A. Carson, he said it this way. He said, if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them to tell you about their private prayer life. It's embarrassing. Most people in American Christianity can impress others with their Bible knowledge or evangelism stories, but our private prayer times are downright embarrassing. What's scary about this is that Jesus told us in John 15, he told us that apart from him, we can do nothing. And the crazy thing about that is the main way we access his power is through prayer. It's through prayer. Luke chapter 11, by the way, if you turn in there, turn in your Bibles if you got a Bible. Luke writes the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And we're going to study it this week. And he goes out of his way to show us that the source of even Jesus' power was prayer. Even though he was the son of God, his power in life and ministry came through prayer. John had declared in John 5, 19, Jesus had declared, I should say, I do nothing by myself. What is he saying? I only do what I see my father doing. That meant that Jesus' ministry was not of his own initiative. That meant that Jesus' ministry depended on the power of the father in him and through him. And that was a power that Jesus only accessed through prayer. And so Luke, if I can just show you for a few moments, shows us that every stage of Jesus' life was saturated in prayer. All of Jesus' life was saturated in prayer. Follow with me for a moment in Luke's gospel, Luke 3 and 21. He shows us that Jesus was praying at his baptism. In chapter 4, Jesus is praying through his temptation in the wilderness. In chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, he tells us that Jesus went off alone many times to pray. In chapter 6, verse 12, he reveals that before Jesus chose his disciples, he spent the entire night praying the night before. Pretty interesting when you see it through Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, before he presented the disciples with a do or die question, who do men say that I am? He spent the afternoon in prayer to his father. After they made their declaration, putting their lives at risk against the Roman Empire to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, that he went up on a mountain to spend time in prayer. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Luke tells us that Jesus taught his disciples always to pray. In chapter 11, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And I find it so amazing that it's interesting to me that after all they had seen, all the miracles and all the sermons they had heard preached, what they wanted to learn more about from Jesus was, Lord, teach us to pray, not how to do miracles and not how to preach, which tells us that they knew something we don't know in the 21st century, and that is you can't preach that way and you can't do miracles unless you spend time in prayer with the Father. They knew that prayer was the source of his life, the power of his ministry. In chapter 22 and verse 32, Jesus promises Peter that he'll pray for him during his hour of trial. In chapter 22 and verse 40, Jesus commanded his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. And in 23, 46, Luke shows us that Jesus' last breath at the hour of his death was a prayer. The point Luke seems to be making is this. If Jesus, God in the flesh, felt like he could do nothing on his own and so was driven always to prayer, why do we, you and I, go throughout our lives with so little prayer? Do we think ourselves more competent than our Savior? Do we think ourselves more capable than our Savior Jesus? But that's not it for Luke because Luke writes another book. It's called Acts. He continues on and Luke in the book of Acts, he demonstrates that prayer was the foundation of the early church's ministry. Track with me through the book of Acts. In fact, the secret behind all church growth 
oh, I know it's a whole lot quicker and easier to do business principles to make church growth. It's a whole lot slower to do prayer, but it's the only way that fruit lasts, okay? It's the only way that true lasting fruit happens. And here's what's so amazing. He, he begins to tell us the secret. Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves constantly to prayer. Acts 4.24, they prayed for an outpouring of signs and wonders in the midst of persecution. In Acts 6, the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Did you catch that? Prayer was considered a ministry of the church just like the word was considered a ministry of the church. It wasn't preaching as the real ministry, and we come together with a few handful of people on Saturday night to pray for the pastor because the ministry of the word is the real ministry, and the ministry of prayer is the preparation. No, prayer was the ministry. Preaching was the ministry. They devoted themselves to the ministry of prayer. They devoted themselves to the ministry of the word. Acts 9 and 4 40, Peter prayed for the six. Acts 12 and 5, the church prayed for Peter to be released from prison. Acts 13 and 2, they are praying when God raises up two missionaries named Paul and Barnabas to go to the very first missionary journey in the Mediterranean world. In Acts 14 and 23, they appointed elders through prayer. We often say at Dwelling Place, Jesus had a threefold ministry. It was preaching, teaching, and healing, and it was exhaustive. But Luke ends the book of Acts by telling us Paul's ministry was not preaching, teaching, and healing. He tells us that Paul's ministry was preaching, healing, and praying. Preaching, healing, and praying. The ministry of Paul the Apostle. You can literally find the church and prayer in every single chapter of the book of Acts. All 28 chapters, every single chapter has prayer. It was fundamental to what they did. Here's my concern. What was fundamental for the early church has become supplemental in dwelling place church. What was foundational? What was without a doubt going to be happening and taking place? We look at prayer as something we do on the way to ministry. They looked at prayer as the ministry. It shows, by the way, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what happens? They pray for 10 days. Peter gets up and preaches a 10-minute message, and 3,000 people get saved. We pray for 10 minutes. I preach for what seems like 10 days, and three people get saved. So what we did is we went 2,000 years ahead and switched the zeros. And it matters. It matters. What we find in Acts is that it's so much more important to talk to God about people than to talk to people about God. Acts tells us it's more important to talk to God about people than people about God. So my question is this, why do we find it so difficult to pray? Now, when we've asked that question in church history, we always normally have the same answer. I actually think it might be the wrong answer. I know. Trying to be weird, right? Trying to be odd. Most of us, when we say why we don't pray, we point to a problem with self-discipline. I'm not disciplined enough. We don't pray for the same reason we don't work out, and we don't eat enough alfalfa sprouts. We are just undisciplined, right? And so you're thinking that my job today is to get you to attempt to make a new fall resolution where you'll pray more in the morning and set a time. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to do something different. I actually want this weekend to put forward a different, I think very accurate, and I want to humbly do it, but very accurately do it, put forth a different primary reason you don't pray. It's painfully honest, but it's the truth if you'll just accept it. For many of us, we don't pray because we're just not sure how much good prayer actually does. I know we don't say that, and you would never say that out loud. We're not really sure of how good and how much good can actually happen when we pray. But see, this is how I know. Sometimes you pray and things happen. Sometimes you pray and they don't. Sometimes you forget to pray about the thing and the thing still happens anyway. So what you do intrinsically is you say, is there any connection between praying and producing? 
you start now thinking, if I pray, is there any connection at all? If it's going to happen anyway, it's not going to happen anyway. What, what does God view our prayer life? This is why many people struggle with praying, by the way. So it's encouraging to me that in Luke chapter 11, when the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus was praying, look at verse 1, in a, a certain place, and, the, and he finished, the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. In other words, he gives them some initial instructions about how to pray. But then Jesus, in four verses later, folks, like Luke eleven five, 5, goes to the very first reason why we don't pray, and it's unanswered prayer. He knows that's why you won't pray, because that's the first thing he addresses. The first thing he addresses after he tells them how to pray the Lord's Prayer is he addresses the problem of unanswered prayer. Is that a problem for anybody other than Pastor Craig in the room today? The problem of unanswered prayer. Like I said, for many of us, this is the reason you quit praying. Maybe the reason you gave up on church and God altogether. Because you prayed and you thought any loving God surely would do what you think is right in this situation and things didn't happen like you thought they should and so you can't make sense of that. But clearly Jesus is aware of your frustration and he's aware of their frustration because he recognized unanswered prayer is the primary obstacle to prayer. So here's what I want to do. By the way, can I just say really quickly, it, this is good news. That means there, there's not, not something wrong for you, wrong with you if you're a doubter. Whew, I can breathe. Just let that sink in a minute. Like you're not an evil person who's unbelieving and strange because you don't believe in the power of prayer. You're normal. You're normal. You're, you're what it means to be a disciple. Because he knew their frustration, and so he was about to address their frustration. Their frustration with unanswered prayer. He understands it. Luke 11, I won't answer it. Let Jesus answer it. Verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Let me give you some context as I read, or else it won't make much sense. Unfortunately, in first century Palestine, there were no 24-hour grocery stores. You could not go, no late-night Taco Bells. Or I guess it would be falafel bells or shawarma bells or hummus bells. I don't know. Pita breads, pita, pita bells. I don't know what it is. But, but there were no late-night Fourth meals, okay? There's none of that. And again, in the first century, hospitality was huge. So this guy doesn't want to send his friend away at midnight hungry. So what does the Bible say, verse 7? He will answer from within the house, don't bother me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. All right, a few other details to help you make sense of the story. First, in a country with no electricity, midnight is really middle of the night, this is not Atlanta where midnight is still three hours before bedtime, okay? This is why we're so tired all the way in culture because our culture has shifted. We don't go to bed when it gets dark. They always did historically, and that's why they're able to get up and in some sense be a little bit more productive. But nonetheless, that's an issue of our culture. But still, but this is it. Midnight, midnight is midnight. It's middle of the night. So this guy's already been sleeping about four hours. He's already been about four hours in. I mean, he's in full. If he's got a Fitbit on, he's in full rim. I mean, he is flatlined rim, okay? His Fitbit is telling him he is in rim sleep. He's in the good dreaming. Okay, then notice it says he's in bed with his children. In those days, people lived in one-bedroom houses with one big bed area, and everybody slept together. In other words, to get up to get bread, you waking everybody in the bed up. You're waking everybody in the house up. Parents, I don't know, I don't have to tell you how irritating it would be to have finally gotten all five of your kids down in one room apartment. They're all laying in the bed with you, and then all of a sudden, some dude starts banging on the door at midnight saying, give me some bread, okay? I remember our, our kids are so young now, when we put them to sleep, we literally, we literally, when we put them to sleep, we're like, do not breathe from the time you leave the bed to the time you get outside the door because you'll mess with the air draft in the room and the air draft will hit their nose and it'll wake them up, right? It's like, <sighs> I mean, you're doing everything you can to try to get out of the room. 
By the way, I love how Jesus starts the conversation. Notice how he starts the conversation. Friend, lend me three loaves. That's a good word for you to use if you're knocking on a person's door at midnight because when you're waking up somebody at midnight, the whole friendship thing's on thin ice. Okay, I love how Jesus just, yeah, call him friend. That's good. Thank you. First, appreciate that. Third detail to notice, the man making the request here doesn't have an emergency. He doesn't have an emergency. It's not like my wife is falling. There's blood coming out her ears. Please help me. He's like, I got some guests at the house and we're out of Pop-Tarts. Would you give me some Pop-Tarts? That's what he's saying. There's nothing of an emergency to this, this parable, Jesus says. It's just a simple request. Finally, the request he puts forward is exorbitant. Okay, what do you mean? One loaf in, the, in this world would have been sufficient, would have fed an entire family for an entire day. Two would just be show your extravagant. Three, to be generous with your community. This joker asked for three loaves at midnight. He wants three loaves of bread. Verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. In fact, by this time, he's probably not his friend anymore. Yet because of his impudence, is there a better word to describe kids under the age of 10 than impudence? Your translation may say, with great boldness. It may be shamelessness. It may be bug you to deathness. That's impudence. That's impudence. He gets his request according to Jesus, not because the guy loves him as a friend, but because of his boldness and because of his persistence in asking. And then Jesus says, here's the curveball, verse 8 or 9. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Now, the whole analogy of knocking reinforces the idea of persistent asking, right? When you knock, you don't just walk up to the door and hit it once. You come to my house in the middle of the night, you knock on my door once, boom, I ain't getting up because I think me and Mary thinks Marley has fallen out of the bed, okay? No one does this. How weird is that? You don't do that. When you knock, you do this at least. Maybe you do this. I don't know what you do. I don't know what your cadence of knocking is, but it ain't this. That's not knocking. And so Jesus says, knock, and if no one comes to the door, you keep on knocking. Jesus says, this is what like prayer is. You keep on knocking. You better go ahead and tell God it's of no use for you to act like you don't hear me. You get up out of your bed because you're the only one that can help me, and I won't stop bothering you till you get out of your bed, walk to that door, open that door, and you meet my need. You alone are the one that can meet my need. I'm not looking to anybody else to meet my need. You alone are the one I have faith in to meet the need. I can't look to the left or right. I got nobody else. I got no, no other person to help me. And Jesus says, this is what you should do to your father. You keep on knocking, and you just tell him you're one of those kind of people, so you might as well just get up and answer because I'm going to keep bothering you. I'm going to give you no sleep. I'm going to bother you to death. That's what our Jesus tells us prayer to our Father is like. You say, well, how does this jive with this whole idea of God is sovereign? And, I mean, in Craig, if it was God's will to give the request, why not give it the first time we ask it? Well, I'm not totally sure, although I've got a couple ideas I'm going to share in a minute. But the point is clear is this, that God only gives some things in response to ongoing, patient, persistent prayer. That's what Jesus teaches about prayer. Now, really quick. Let me say it another way. You ready? This might be more memorable for you. God delights to share his power with those who are bold enough to bother him. He will share his power with those who are bold enough to keep bothering him. So let's flip over real quick in your Bible, Luke 18. Now, I want to show you how Luke records this same essential teaching twice because he realizes you won't get it. I won't get it either. <laughs> Unanswered prayer is such a common problem. Luke's like, you got it? Remember back in 11? No. Nope. All right, let's do it again. Luke 18. And he tells us essentially the same story, same lesson, same teaching, different verse. Here's what he says. Why? Why? Why does he do it twice, folks? Because unanswered prayer is so counterintuitive to our minds. It's a problem. So he tells us again. Let's read it. Verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they all 
always to pray and not lose heart. And he said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared nor God nor respected man. So this is a bad dude. He don't care about God and he don't care about people. And there was a city, a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, in other words, I don't like God and I don't like people, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Pause. God is willing to say you are beating him down. There's no other way to interpret this parable when you consistently beat on his door. You will not relent. I will give what she desires because she is wearing me out. She's wearing me out. This is Jesus' statement of how we are to pray because the disciples asked him how to pray, and he tells them this. This is how you pray. And then Jesus unbelievably says, this is like praying to God. Hold on, time out. Let me tell you something about parables. Anytime you read a parable, you're always looking for who's you and who's God. This one's pretty easy. You, the disciples, hear him telling them, and they're like, who's me? Who's, okay, we're the widow. Got it, cool. We're not judges. Okay, we got it, got it. So what does that make God? Oh, it would make God a grumpy old judge who doesn't really care and care and only gives this woman what she wants because she won't stop annoying him? Is there any other way to interpret this verse? No other way. Am I doing injustice to the text? This is what God is. What? I mean, seriously, I would not want to be the one to tell this parable. Can anybody on planet Earth get away with this parable other than Jesus? Nobody. Who can call the judge, grumpy old judge, who doesn't have a care for the widow, who just worn down by the widow, other than Jesus? You say, Craig, what is going on? Jesus' point is not to compare God to an unjust judge, but to contrast God with one. What are you saying, Craig? He's saying even if an unrighteous, selfish judge would grant answers because of persistent asking, and even if a sleeping, stingy, stingy friend who cares more about his five kids than you at a door will get up and give us our request, How much more will our heavenly Father who does love for us and does care for us and constantly watch over us give us what we need when we persistently come to him and ask him? Back to Luke 11. Through these parables, Jesus teaches us four things that are very crucial about our prayer life. Number one, we should pray desperately. Everybody say desperately. Both of the characters in these stories are desperate. Both are entirely out of options. There's no plan B. The hunger man has nowhere else to go. The wrong woman doesn't have a husband in her life to take care of her justice. She needs a judge. Tell me, let me tell you something. One of the things that keeps us from praying is our failure to recognize how utterly desperate we are for God's help. I would say it's the number one thing that keeps us from praying. How utterly desperate we are. As Americans, we are the can-do people. We as a people assume in America with enough time, with enough energy and with enough money, we can find a solution to anything. It's right there in our name. We are Americans. Cans. We are not Americans. Although as Christians, we should be Americans. We're not Americans. We can do it. We feel like we can do it. We have a book for dummies for everything under the sun. Go to, go to Books A Million. See if I'm lying to you. Somebody a couple years ago gave me a book for dummies about God. I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? Am I, am I, you know, like, if you're my parishioner and you come give me a book for dummies about God, like, what are you saying to me? Is that a compliment as a pat? But, but they make a book for dummies about God. We in America are DIYs. Just turn on Chip and Joanna, baby. 
My wife, every show she watches is DIY. Well, DIY is good, but it's poisonous and dangerous to a people who are told that apart from me, you can do nothing. DIY is the worst thing that can happen to a church. DIY is the worst thing that can happen to a Christian believer. Why? Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Paul Miller, he wrote a book called The Praying Life. My wife and I were reading. I'm almost completely finished with it. You know, I've read a lot on prayer. Uh, it's over 350,000 copies sold. I would kind of venture out there to say it's probably the best book on prayer I've ever read. Uh, it's, it's one of the only books that I read. I don't want to read it anymore. I want to go pray. That's a good book on prayer. So I don't want to keep reading. I want to go pray. It, it's a, one book on prayer that makes me want to pray, and it really convicts me very, very hard, uh, particularly in the area of the logistics of prayer, how he prays on cards, and he takes you through his life. It's really story-driven of how God has answered almost four out of five things that he's put on every person he's ever prayed for in his life, and he keeps consistently praying for them. And then he shows the person when they, it's really, really amazing book. But he talks about God answering, and he talks about the whole issue of prayer is about asking. If you sum all of Jesus's parables down, prayer in its essence is this ASK. Just ask. You have not because you ask not. You, you, you stop asking. Well, here's what he says. This is what he says. Interesting quote. He says, if you're not praying, by the way, is that you? Don't read it. Don't read any further in the quote until you kind of identify if that's you. Do you have a problem with a robust prayer life? Okay, so here he's going to tell you diagnosis. Then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired. You'll always be a little too busy to pray. But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find the time to pray. My wife and I have experienced this in parenting. We've got an eight, eight, five, and an 18-month-old. When I became a parent eight years ago, I read every possible book that I could get my hands on on Christian parenting. Everybody said, read, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Everybody said, read this book from Paul David Tripp. And I read everything I could read. You know why? Because here's my philosophy. I'm a game changer. I'm an initiator. I'm an activator. I'm a one, three on the Enneagram. I want to get it done. Give me the principle. Here we go. So here's what I said. If I can just figure out the principle in this parenting thing, I'll be able to guarantee my kids turn out right for Jesus. If I can just give it, give me the formula, give me the principles, give me all the biblical principles. I put the biblical principles in action into my home and I will guarantee. But baby, the most impacting book I've ever read on parenting is one by Elise Patrick, my wife and I are going through now called Give Them Grace. And you know what she does? She says in this book, all Christian parenting books at our Christian bookstore are trying to do one thing. They're trying to give you a formula and tell you to follow it and guarantee success in parenting. But she starts the premise with this idea. She says, God was a perfect father and one third of the angels and the first two humans he created rebelled. Do you think you're gonna out-technique God as a parent? Parenting's hard, Craig. Yeah, the, the first experiment in it, the older brother killed the younger. Yeah, it's hard, okay, yeah. It's real hard. I mean, if, you're, if you got two kids that are still living and they ain't killed each other, you're doing a little bit better than the first humans, okay? It's hard. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's difficult. She says the real danger and problem with thinking that you can get principles and your kids will turn out all right, or she calls it a foolproof way of parenting, is that it keeps us from the one thing we need to do. We need to, as moms and dad, cast ourselves down at the feet of Jesus every day looking for him and his mercy in our kids' lives and to do what we can't do in the hearts of our kids. And she goes on to say, I did my best parenting by prayer. She said, I began to speak less to the kids and more to God about the kids, and it changed my life. Prayer is not just preparation for the ministry of parenting. Prayer is the most important element of parenting. To pray. 
And she pointed to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 10. Remember what the Bible says? Humble yourself in prayer under the mighty of hand of God so that he may what? Exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Listen, what is she saying? Who does the exalting? Is it your parenting skills does the exalting? Is it your principles does the exalting? Can you raise your kids in the faith? No, you can't. All you can do is cast yourself at the feet of Jesus in prayer and God raises them up at a point in time. You can't raise your kids by your techniques. You can't raise your kids for Jesus Christ by your good principles alone. You can't do that. It's God who raises them up. It's God who lifts them up. My hope for my kids is not in my parenting skill, not even the skills I learned from the Bible. It's in the grace of God who himself will raise them up. My hope for my marriage is not in good Christian techniques, although they're good in relationships. My hope for my marriage is at the end of the day, my hope, our hope is in God's grace. Our hope for success and mission in this church is not because we have a superior strategy or we have a a talent of of a certain uh, pool bed of, of people or a gene pool. It's entirely on God's grace. No skill, not even biblical skill is sufficient. That's why he said in Proverbs, cursed is the man who trusts in man who made the arm of the flesh his strength. If you make the arm of your flesh your strength, you know one of the most ironic ways we can trust in man is when we learn all the biblical principles and we think that those by themselves guarantee spiritual life. Jesus did not give us life by throwing words at us. Jesus gave us life by dying on a cross and giving us resurrection power. You are not saved by a principle. You're not saved by a a word that's out in space. You're saved by the word taking on flesh and living before you and going to a cross and being resurrected on the third day. In other words, it's a tragedy to master the principles and forget the dependency in relationship that gives the principles life. Principles are dead. They have no life apart from dependency on the God who gave us those principles. That's where life is. I don't like that as a parent. I want principles. But when I get that, I will pray desperately. The realization alone has enabled my wife and I to start praying. I was so convicted when I read this book because we don't pray for our kids together enough. We pray alone for our kids in our own prayer time. And I said, Mary, we can't do this because when our kids get, um, when, they, when they become teenagers, we're not gonna go to the Lord out of prayer. Uh, we're not gonna pray to the Lord because of discipline. We're gonna pray to the Lord out of desperation. We probably won't make it five or six hours a day when they're teenagers to be able to say, we gotta come together. We gotta pray, we gotta pray. We gotta put our hands together. We gotta go to the Lord together. We gotta pray, why? Because the core of effective prayer is desperation, not discipline. It's being desperate. It's knocking on the door. And let me just say this practically before I move on to point two. Some of you, you should probably focus less on setting a long morning prayer time and focus more on just teaching yourself to pray about everything throughout the day Why? Because of how much you need God's help. Now, listen, an established morning time or evening time is really good. And it's, of course, awesome if you do it for a long time. But even better is learning to pray over everything throughout the day. One of my prayer heroes, here's what he said. He said to me, Craig, I never prayed longer than 20 minutes at a time, but I've never went more than 20 minutes without praying. I like that. I never prayed more than 20 minutes, but I've never been more than 20 minutes without praying. I think that indicates a healthier attitude towards God than the person who prays for an hour out of self-discipline, but then charges throughout the day for 23 hours, not thinking about the need for the power of God. To say, God, I'm going to saturate everything in prayer. Maybe a long prayer time won't work for you. It's okay. Did a pastor just tell me I don't have to have a long prayer time? Maybe your mind starts wondering. Don't look at me like that. Anybody else have an ADD prayer life other than me? 
No? Okay, cool. You start out praying for missionaries, and you start thinking about stranger things within seven minutes. You're, you're, you're seeing the dude drive down the road on a bike, and you're like, how in the world did I get to stranger things? What, what has happened here? Or how about you kneel down to pray by your bed, and two hours later you wake up. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. It's always funny to me in all-night prayers, everybody's so intense from 10 to 2, and about 3 o'clock a.m. is when everybody just seems to want to change the, the position and posture of prayer. They just want to kind of lay silent to hear the Lord. It seems like, it seems like at about 3 a.m., everybody wants to find a pew and just lay silent to hear the voice of the Lord. But, but from 10 to 2, there's no silence. They're, they're, they're literally like bombarding the gates of hell, right? But then about 3 o'clock, something kind of moves over, this spirit of prostrateness, you know, this spirit of lay before the Lord, right? Just kind of lay out before the Lord. Maybe some of you need to write your prayers out. Here's what I've done on my phone. I've taken my phone and divided it into various days, and I keep a running list of things that overwhelm me, and then I slide those things into those days. Some of you, right now, your names are on that list. I don't take my phone up here anymore because some of you text me while I'm preaching about things I should add to my sermons while I'm preaching my sermon, right? So I don't do that anymore, but if I could show you my phone, right? Like, I could show you my phone. There's, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things. Your names are on that list, and maybe that makes you makes you make, you get on my list when you do that. I don't know. But some of you, some of you like to sing. Maybe you need to sing your prayers to God. Others of you can't sing work of the lick. And God would probably say, please, Craig, stop singing your prayers to me. I would much rather you talk. Stick to the pencil, brother. Keep writing. Right? Some of you should try praying out loud. Oh, listen, this is not popular. I know it. I know it's not popular. Even when you're by yourself, you should pray out loud. Well, I don't like it. It feels weird. Well, get over yourself because every prayer of Jesus in the entire gospels was out loud. There's not one prayer Jesus makes that's not out loud. You say, why does he do it? Because it lets us know I can stay focused and I'm not praying to a brain. I'm praying to a God who is able to hear me. So you get your mouth open and you start talking. And you realize you're talking not to a wall. You're not talking to a stud. You're talking to a God. Listen, the form is less important. Prayer at its core is a desperate conversation with your heavenly Father where you tell him all that you need, all that you're afraid of, all that you're worried about, all that you, hand, you can't handle because you know how much you need him. You know how much you need. Everybody say desperately. He says, secondly, we should pray boldly, boldly. The two people in Jesus' parable come with extravagant big requests. Jesus says, if this is how they came to a stingy friend and an unrighteous judge, how much more boldly should you come to your heavenly Father? Everybody say boldly. As I noted before, that these two stories Jesus told are very comedic for their hyperbole. He's not comparing God to a slumbering friend or an unjust judge. Jesus is contrasting God to these people. Why? The woman approached the judge as a stranger. We come as beloved children. The woman had no right to make a claim in court. We have the blood of Jesus by which we boldly become before the throne of grace. The judge we approach is not one who doesn't care about justice or us. No, the judge we approach is a father who cares so much about us that he got out of the judge's chair and he came down and satisfied our demands for justice so that he could share with us the riches of his kingdom. The friend we approach is not asleep and cares more about his five kids than us on the front step. He's so attentive to us that he knows the very numbers of hairs on our head and when a single sparrow falls from the sky he is the one who did not just give us loaves of bread from a kitchen cupboard he gave us the bread of his own torn flesh outside of Calvary outside of Jerusalem one day what are you saying when we understand this we will pray boldly boldly that our judge and our friend is wanting us to beseech him this is how Jesus says prayer is, is a reality this is how he tells him to pray do you, know, do you know who most boldly, naturally boldly approaches me? Parents, you know this. Who most naturally approaches me most boldly? My kids. 
I wake up, 3 a.m. I got eyeballs from Marley that are an inch away from my eyes, and she's like, I want some water. Like, who else could get away with that? Like, listen, you come to my house, you wake me up at 3 a.m., an inch from my face, one of us is going to the hospital or jail, okay? And more likely going to be you because I'm going to pull out a gun. You know what I'm saying? Nobody can get away with that except my kids. 3 a.m. in the morning, Dad, I need some water, right? I need some water. I mean, even if it were my wife. And she, I woke up 3 a.m., she's an inch from my face. I wouldn't call the police. I'd say, get yourself some water. But if I wake up in the middle of the night, it's one of my kids, I do what any good dad would do. I say, your mom's sleeping right there on the other side, okay? She's, she's right there. I'm just kidding. I, I get up and get water. I'll go get some water. I'll give her the water. Why? My kids approach me with undaunted confidence in my goodness towards them. Not one time in the history of Knox Mosgrove life for eight years or five years in Marleyanne or 18 months in Little Harper Grace have they ever doubted my goodness and goodwill towards them. They have undaunted confidence that I want the best for them. I'll do whatever it is for them. I'll bend over backwards for them. Why? Because they are my kids. And that's how Jesus says the Father wants us to approach him. We are to approach him like children who are welcome right in the middle of that bedroom at three o'clock in the night with whatever need we have to literally knock on the heaven's door and say, I need some water. And God says, I'll get up and give you some water. Look how he presses that point in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus presses the point because I don't think he thinks we get it. He says, if you then who are evil love to give good gifts to your children. Hey, evil's a big old word, isn't it? Why is Jesus using that word evil in this context? Jesus, thank you for the gratuitous reminder of our human depravity. Is that what he's doing? No. You know why he's doing that? Because most of us, even people who are hard-hearted, are most loving when we are dealing with our kids, even if we're sucky people. Even if we're not good people, we're going to be serial killers, and we're still trying to serial kill to make money so that we can feed our kids. We are at our best with our kids, and yet, What Jesus says is compared to God's love for his children, even the best parent on the best day would be considered evil. Think how tenderly you are when you love your kids, yet compared to God's love for his children, even that love for your kids is evil compared to God's love for you. Wow, folks. What would your prayers look like if you really believe God had that kind of love for you? What would your prayers look like if you really believe God loved the world around you like that? So you pray desperately, you pray boldly. Number three, you pray persistently. Everybody say persistently. If anything, my kids know how to wear me out. My kids know how to wear me out. For them, no is not an answer. No is an invitation to an extended negotiation in which they know I'll eventually crumble. So I think they go in the other room and they say, if dad says no, let's go to siege mentality. Let's get around him and circle him like Jericho for seven days. Let's be quiet, and then we're going to shout, okay? And then once you shout, I'll shout. And then once you shout, I'll shout again. And you shout, I'll shout. And we'll just keep asking Dad until he crumbles. I know he'll crumble. He's done it before. Let's just keep doing it. They get this haul-out siege mentality, and they just go around me, and they, they go from every way, every angle. And finally, I'm so worn out, so worn out, that you literally say, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And what we see is that Jesus makes clear in these parables that the reason that God answers these requests is because of the persistence of the one asking. By the way, side note, you ready? All of Jesus' parables about prayer in the Gospels are where adults act like children. (laughs) 
Okay, that's good. So there's not a parable that Jesus tells about prayer where adults don't become like kids because kids don't know how to stop. Kids are impudent. Kids are bold. Kids are persistent. Kids seed you. Kids wear you down. Kids won't take no for an answer. Kids keep asking. He says in 11, chapter 11, verse 8, because of his impudence, he'll give him the request. 18, verse 5, because of her continual coming, the answer was given. Finally, yes, I'll give it to you. The rest of the scriptures demotes this or demonstrates this too. Acts chapter 11 tells us the church prayed all night for the release of Peter. That doesn't mean they just mentioned it once and then picked up a John Piper book and meditated on the sovereignty of God the rest of the prayer meeting. One's enough. If it's his will, then one will do it. No, they prayed until that joker got his rear end out of the jail. And they didn't stop until. And they kept praying. And they kept believing. And they kept praying. And they kept believing. And they kept praying. Peter got this. Paul got this. At least one place, Paul was praying so much over the same thing, God had to send an angel and get him to shut up. 2 Corinthians 12, nine, take this thorn, 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 take this thorn. Paul, I'm not going to take the thorn, but I have grace that's sufficient for you, and I got a better plan. I wish God would have to shut some dwelling place people up who keep on bugging him about seeing a city come to know him. I wish God would have to come down and shut us up. I wish God would have to come down and shut some mamas up who keep consistently praying for their posterity, their children and their children's children, that we keep praying. We keep knocking on the door of heaven. And every once in a while, what happens? God comes and he shows a victory. One of my favorite scenes of this in the Old Testament, remember Exodus 17, uh, the children of Israel down in the valley, uh, they're in uh, uh, battle, and Moses discovers that if his hands are up in prayer, <laughs> then the victory would be granted by God. I've often wondered when I read that story, because Aaron and her get on both sides lifted. What did Moses do when he f- figured that out? Like, how long did it take him to figure it out? Like, when my hands are up, they win. They're down, they're not. And then when he figured it out, what did he do? Just start doing jumping jacks? <laughs> they're, whoop, they're, they're killing, they're back down. They're, whoop, you know, like, I don't I just see this. Like, he, he does up, oh, they got him. Oh, they're back down. Oh, they're getting killed. Like, what, what's happening in this story? But Moses is there on the rock, He's sitting on the rock, and Aaron and her lift his hands, and as long as their hands are lifted in prayer, God grants the victory. As long as the hands fall in prayer, we have no more victory. Now, I know some of you, what, what, what are you saying the point is, Craig? The point is this. If he's not answering, keep praying. If he's not answering, keep praying. Now, some of you, you say, man, I got the exceptions, because that's all you're thinking about since I started the message. You just are exception-oriented. I know. I got an answer for you, too. Hopefully, God will speak to you through it. One time I prayed for this, and I never got it, Pastor Craig. I get that. But more importantly, Jesus gets that. John 11, Mary and Martha prayed for the brother Lazarus to die, to not die, and Jesus told them God let him die because he had a greater plan. So Jesus is aware of this exception. But here in Luke 11, he's like to them. They say, come, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, okay, I'm telling you how to pray. Don't you let go until you absolutely have to. You got somebody dealing with cancer? You keep praying and believing God will heal them until they go into a casket then you absolutely don't have to pray anymore. But Jesus says, you want to know how to pray? Let me tell you how to pray. You don't stop. You keep on doing this, and you keep on knocking on the door, and you keep on asking the judge to show justice in your situation. You don't stop praying. And you say, Craig, well, why? Why does God work that way? Why doesn't he give me the first time? I don't know that, all that, but that's clearly what he's teaching. I have a a guess. That guess is that God is glorified through our persistent boldness. What? These people in Jesus' parable only have one absolute conviction. 
They only have one conviction. You know what it is? You have the power to help me. You will help me. You are the only one who can help me, and I have nowhere else to go. When you come to that kind of faith in God, do you not think he's glorified? I don't have anywhere else to go, God. Remember the story of, of, of Alexander the Great? I told you back in September we did a series called Prayer. I told you the story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, an interesting story, he's at the end of his life, and there's a general who served him for 40 years. A general comes to him at the end of his life and says, General, I've served you for 40 years. I have one request. He said, what is it? He said, I want you to pay for my daughter's wedding. He said, okay, I'll do it. He said, I want you to get out of my office and go talk to my treasurer. He goes and talks to the treasurer. Treasurer comes back a week later, and he says, General, I mean, he says, uh, Alexander. He said, you need to punish that general. He said, why would I punish him? He said, he took advantage of you because he said you would pay it. He's having the largest wedding that Greece has ever had. He's doing ice sculptures at the reception. They got Justin Bieber singing at the, at the reception. Mel Gibson's making an appearance. He says, I want you to punish him. Punish him. And Alexander said, nope. He said, give him every single thing that general asked for. And he says, why? He says, because my general is paying me two compliments. He said, what compliments? He said, number one, he thinks I'm wealthy enough to afford all this. That's a compliment. And number two, he actually thinks I'm generous enough that I'll do it. And I love the reputation in this kingdom of being wealthy and generous. So my general honors me by thinking that I'm generous and that I'm also expensive or have enough money to pay for what he desires. Let me tell you when God really gets glorified in the midst of an unbelieving world. It's when you go to God with a need that seemed to can't be met by anybody else around you. And you believe that God not only is generous enough to meet it, but God is generous enough to meet it in a way that shows everybody else that he is able to meet every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. If you hear one thing this week and hear this, if you're praying and praying and praying and you don't have an answer yet, keep on praying. Don't quit praying. How many times have I seen this as a pastor? I've seen faithful men and women of faith hang on for 20, 30 years of things that are impossible. And at the last minute, or at the end, or years later, something happens, and it is amazing. Every once in a while, maybe, every, maybe more than every once in a while, God responds to those people. I'm just not going to give up, people. I'm going to ask and seek and ask and seek and knock and knock and knock and ask and seek and ask and knock. And God says, you know what? I'll give. There are so many stories I could tell you. I could spend till tomorrow if I sat down with you right now and told you those stories that I've seen in pastoral ministry. Here's an old one. I'll give you a quick one. George Mueller writes perhaps one of the most famous books on prayer in the history of the Christian world, George Mueller, in terms of being read. He talks a story about committing to pray for the salvation of five young men. He was 38 years old when he started praying for five young men. It was a friend's sons. And he prayed for 18 months before the first one was converted every day. 18 months. In his journal, I'm gonna give you exactly what he says. He says, I thank God, but there were four more not saved, so I pressed on. He prayed every day for five more years before the second one was converted. We're now at seven years and we've got two out of five. The second one gets converted. Another six years, we're now at 13 years before the third one gets converted. 36 years later, he wrote that the last two were not converted. Three out of five have been converted. But he quotes, I'm gonna give you his journal. This is his words. But I hope in God, I pray on, and I look for the answer. They are not converted yet, these other two, but I know by God's grace they will be. Then in 1897, 52 years after he started praying every day for five young men, all five of them were brought to faith. And, and, and by the way, this was a few years after Moeller died. 52 years every day. 
And all five of them came to Jesus. I defy you to find an example where God doesn't honor that kind of faith. I can't find it in the history of his church. Oh, Jesus loves that kind of faith. He loves that kind of persistence. Why? Because here's the deal. He says, give us this day our what? Daily bread. We prefer to have a Costco relationship with God. We would like to get all of our ideas and things in bulk so that we don't have to go back to him daily. He won't allow it. It's called daily dependence. Some of you have a Sam's relationship with God. He wants a daily bread. And if your bread doesn't has some mold on it, then some of you need to get your rear in gear and start pursuing God in personal prayer. If your bread's got mold on it because it's been waiting around in the kitchen for three or four days, it's time to throw that bread away and go back to the Father. Daily dependence. God, give us this daily bread. I want daily bread. I don't want Costco bread. I don't want Sam's Club membership with you. I want daily dependence on you, God. Daily bread, I come to you, Lord. Why? Because you alone are my hope. Some of you got a brother, father, roommate that's not saved. Don't give up. And then fourth and finally, what does he tell us to pray? He tells us to pray trustingly. So desperately, boldly, persistently, and trustingly. If you look at the parable in Luke 11, Jesus acknowledges that there are indeed sometimes we don't receive the answers we think we should have. And that's not because God doesn't love us. And that's not because he's not listening. It's because he has a greater plan. The title of this message today is Bread, Not Scorpion. Where'd that come from, Craig? Look at Luke 11, verse 11. Luke 11, verse 11. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg in his hand, will you give him a scorpion? Parents, if your kids ask for a chicken nugget, you're not going to say, okay, hold out your hand and put a scorpion in their hand. I hope you won't. Well, God's that way. But let's reverse that. You ready? If your child asks you for a scorpion, will you give him a scorpion? No, you'll give him a chicken nugget. What are you saying, Craig? Sometimes what looks to us like bread is actually a scorpion, and what looks like a scorpion is actually bread, and you're asking for a scorpion that God says, I'm not going to injure you. I'm going to give you bread. But although the scorpion looks like bread, it's actually the bread that seemingly to you is the scorpion. And God says, I'm not going to give you what you think you need because you don't know what I know about you, and you don't know what I know about your future, and you don't know what I know about your situation. In other words, think of the cross. If there was ever a time that anything looked like a scorpion, it was the cross, but yet the the cross became the bread of life that gives us substance for everyday living. Here's something I've held on to in times of unanswered prayer. You ready? Sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. That's how God answers our prayers. In the midst of unanswered prayer, I know that don't answer all your questions, but my dad died, but I got abused. Well, I know you got a heavenly father that the Bible says in Psalm 84, 11, no good thing. Everybody say, no good thing. Does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? And he proved that by dying on the cross for you. Sometimes God doesn't do it or he delays because it's something in us that God wants to change. I've been a youth pastor before planting for almost, almost 12 years. How many stories do I know of parents who prayed for their wayward child and after months and years, they come and say, we realize now we were the actual ones that needed to change. No wonder my son left. No wonder my daughter left. I would have left too. It was us that needed to change. And God, we were saying, why won't you hear us? Why won't you change his heart? And God revealed to us it wasn't his heart that needed to be changed. It was my heart that needed to be changed. And this is sometimes what happens. Maybe that's happening today. But regardless of your unanswered prayer, can I tell you how Jesus told us to pray? The first word out of his mouth, our Father, our Father. My kids ask me for a lot of things, Jenny. Some things I give, some things I don't, but I am always working for their good and never their ill. 
even more so with God. I said, Craig, well, what about the situations that I'm facing? God doesn't seem to answer. What about the person I prayed for and prayed that they would be healed and they died? Doesn't make sense, make sense to keep persistently praying. What about this one? Maybe you prayed for someone to come to faith, and as far as you know, they never accepted Christ before they died. Or maybe you're 60 and you're prayed to get married. But even if you do get married now, you can't go back and live the first 40 years of your life again. Or how about this one? Maybe you have some inward struggle or addiction. You've asked God to deliver you from it, but he hasn't, and you can't figure out why. I told somebody this week, I told him this week, whenever you see a teenager in church with same-sex attraction, the first thing you're dealing with is unanswered prayer because I've yet to meet a teenager with same-sex attraction that has not asked God to take it from him. I haven't met one. not saying they're not there. I just haven't met one. I haven't met one teenager who didn't ask God to take away same-sex attraction. But seemingly, he hasn't. And just as troubling for them that the attraction is the fact that God didn't deliver them. And so this issue of seemingly unanswered prayer is why we walk away from the church altogether. Or for some of you, you wouldn't walk away from the church, but it's at least dampened your confidence and enthusiasm for prayer. It's dampened it. So let's get to the story as I close. Come on, Maddie. This is the last story. Exodus chapter 32. I think this gives us the clear picture. How do our prayers change God's mind? Is that a question we can ask? Exodus 32, Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God. He's got up there alone to receive the Ten Commandments. God actually invited him up there. And God just didn't invite them, by the way. Listen, God invited the whole nation to go up on the mountain. And they said, we're scared. You go, Moses. You know what Old Testament leadership is? Man of God is in the hill of God, hear from God to come back and tell the people of God. We well, you know what New Testament leadership is? We are a kingdom of priests where we all ascend the hill, we all receive the power of God's spirit, and we all go and speak to others. And people say, well, those are two different. No, it's not. In fact, the Old Testament, that's the way God wanted it. He wanted the whole nation to go up. And they said, no, Moses, we're scared. You go up for us. So Moses is up there, and he's meeting with God. And they start freaking out. You say, Craig, why do they freak out? because Moses is up there a little longer than expected and everybody freaks out. By the way, can I just go ahead and tell us that's a totally insane freak out? <laughs> can I say that? You say, Craig, why is it insane to wig out that God's not gonna take care of them? Can I just tell you context? He just delivered them from miraculous from the most powerful empire in the world through 10 supernatural plagues. As a little finishing touch, he moved all of these rich upper-class Egyptians to take off their jewelry and give it to the Israelites as a going-away present. They, he let, they let, Israel left the, the most powerful nation with bling on their bodies. Then God led Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Then he split the Red Sea in half so that they could walk through on dry ground. Then he destroyed Egypt's army in one full swoop when they tried to follow Israel. Then God miraculously supplied Israel in the desert with food and meat every single morning of their life. And just an extra touch of awesomeness on top of it. He kept their shoes from having any signs of wear as they made their several mile journey to Sinai. And now they think God abandoned them. Come on, wake up, Sparky, smell the coffee. But yet you do the same thing and I do the same thing. We do the same thing when God has never, ever been faithless to us and they're wigging out and Israel's mad. So you know what they do? They take off all of their jewelry that God gave them and they put it into a calf and worship the jewelry. We can't see that God, but we'll see this God. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Your people, whose people? Your people. No God, your people. I didn't call myself in a desert in Midian to go deliver anybody. This is your people. Don't you throw that on me, God. Whom you brought up. Who brought out? 
God says Moses brought out? No, you brought out God. I love Moses. Isn't Moses probably one of the greatest leaders? I mean, we can learn so much just by how he interacts with God. You, you, he, he says, out of the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. Go down, Moses, go down. Look at verse 8. Or verse 10. He says, now, let me alone. Let my wrath burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. Wow. God says, I'm going to kill them. You ready, Moses? Come down, speak judgment, and then I'll kill them. You ready? That's what God says. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your, Moses said, God, they are your people, whom you, not me, have brought out of the land of Egypt. He rebukes God and corrects God with one sentence two times. I love Moses. <laughs> it's not my people. And I didn't deliver them. You did, and they're your people. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains? Turn from your burning anger, God, and relent. The translation says repent. It literally means in Hebrew, change your mind, God. It means change your mind. Relent, God. Change your mind from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You remember them? You, you swore to land flowing milk and honey. Did you not do that? Did you do it or not? Did you, God? Did you say that you would give it to them or did you not say it? I need to know. You by your own self said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I promise I will give your offspring and they shall inherit forever. You said all this, God, and probably the most amazing verse in the whole book of Exodus is verse 14. And the Lord relented. Translation, the Lord repented. Better translation, the Lord changed his mind from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. What in the world is going on here, God, Craig? Moses' prayer convinces God to change his mind by reminding God of something that he said he forgot about. Was God having an off day? Did he take too much Ambien the night before? Had he forgotten his quiet time with himself that morning? Did Moses really change his mind? What in the world is happening in this story? And here's what makes it even more confusing. Who wrote Exodus 32? Moses. Who writes the next book? Numbers. What does he say in Numbers 23, 19? This is what Moses says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Pause, Moses. Mm, no, no, sir. You just said God changed his mind. Now you're telling me in Numbers God can't change his mind. Which one is it? Does God change his mind or does he not change his mind? Does he or does he not? What's going on here? Let me tell you what's going on here. There are three truths to hold in tension. And these three things we should never approach as contradictions to be resolved, but truths to be held in tension. I'm going to give you those three truths. And this is true of every one of us in this room. Number one, God's purposes are unchanging. Numbers 23, 19 is correct. God is not a man. He never learns anything new. Nothing ever occurred to God. Oh, it occurred to me. Never can happen. Nothing. He never wises up with experience. He never grows in knowledge. Nothing surprises him. Isaiah concurs. Look what Isaiah says. For I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from beginning. My counsel is to stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah agrees. Paul, what does he say? Ephesians 1.11, in him, we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who's the three biggest writers in all of Scripture? Moses, Isaiah, and Paul. And every one of them agree that God's purposes are unchanging. We have to hold that up. But number two, God's plans are unfolding. God's plans are unfolding. What do you mean, Craig? The source says that God changed his course of action based on Moses' prayer. Did he not? And here's the irony of the story. Who was the one that told Moses to go down on, off the mountain to check on him? God. Did Moses come up with the idea to leave the mountain? No. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people have corrupted themselves. Moses didn't know they corrupted themselves. God showed it to him. Furthermore, the very thing that God, Moses uses to change God's mind is God's own promise. 
And of course, he hadn't forgot about it. When you put it all together, you know what that means? What you see is that God had put Moses in a situation where he would see the problem and remember God's promises and petition God to change his course of action. What we learn from Scripture is God wants us to see this. He wants us to be put in situations because he wants relationship with humans. He wants conversation with humans. He wants daily dependence on himself. He is in an effort for you and I to interact with him. He wants us to be a part of his purpose. He wants us to be instrumental in the purpose that he is fulfilling in the earth. And I know some of you, you're asking, what if Moses refused to pray? Would that mean they would not have been saved? And would that mean it was not God's will to save them after all? And what if I don't pray for somebody in my community that God wants me to pray for? Does that mean that thing I didn't pray about wasn't God's will after all? Or what if God just got someone else to pray for it? And your mind feels like, if you don't like this response, I'm sorry, it's the best one I have. 19th century Princeton theologian A.E. Hodge, he said it this way. Here's what he said. Does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and you die, then would that be the day that God appointed for you to die? And I love the next. Quit asking stupid questions and open your mouth and eat. What do you mean, Craig? Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. Quit asking stupid questions about pray and pray because prayer is the ordained way God executes plans. Stop trying to figure out with your mind of how it interacts with your free will and sovereignty. Shut your mouth and pray and believe that God uses prayer as the preordained way of executing His plan in the earth. <laughs> I know you may not like that response, but that's the best response I can give to you. It's how God set it up. God has hardwired Greg, the universe, to run on prayer. And yet His plans are unchanging. That's a pretty cool God. That kind of makes me want to leave this gathering he'll pray. That makes me want to boldly approach him and petition him and ask him on behalf of those I love that he would not relent in pursuing them and letting his love overwhelm their hearts. What are you supposed to take away from it, Craig? I'm, spo you know, I'm supposed to take away the fact that I'm sovereignly placed in a situation precisely for the express purpose of praying his promises and changing his plans. Let that sink in a minute. You are put into that neighborhood. Why? You're put into that situation. He sent you down into a family, a group of friends, a neighborhood. Some of you looked around at your family and thought, why did God make me a part of this family? He put you there to pray. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah, why, why did I get born to these parents? Because he, he put you there to pray. And he wants you to be flabbergasted that he answers your prayers. He wants you to be flabbergasted that he listens to your voice. And he knows your petition. And this is why God did it. Sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Would you close your eyes all across this room? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.